In 2002, a jawbone was found in southern Romania belonging to an ancient human from about 40,000 years ago. I say ancient human, I suppose it's a, a modern human in, in biological terms. Significantly, he had about 8% Neanderthal DNA. And that means that about six or seven generations back from him, one of his ancestors had bred with a, with a Neanderthal. And that's, I think, a pretty stunning image of a world, I mean, not that long ago in terms of deep time, in terms of the, the whatever, millions of years that, that fauna that we would recognise existed on, on the planet. That's a stunning image for me of a world in which we, modern humans, biologically modern humans, lived on a planet with, with multiple other human species. Maybe, I mean, even more incredibly than that, actually, um, I was reading the fantastic uh, book A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived by Adam Rutherford. I would, I would really recommend it. It's been out for a few years, but it's, it's a really interesting read about... I was reading the, the Homo floresiensis, I believe they're called, who, who are sort of a Southeast Asian in the... Well, in the, the, the islands, what are now islands, I think at that point may not have been islands, um, about 50,000 years ago. Homo floresiensis were, 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 were human, sort of between three and four foot tall. Denisovans, who are another branch of the, of the human family tree, about 15,000 years ago, more, more in, in East Asia. And, I mean, with floresiensis, there's, there, there, are, there are sort of folk stories on the island of Flores of, you know, small people in the forests and stuff. So, so there's sort of tantalising, the tantalising idea that they, they've actually been knocking around more recently than, than that. And these different species, you know, Neanderthals and, and, and Denisovans and Floresiensis, they're kind of, they are, they're different. They're phenotypically different. They've got, for example, Neanderthals being slightly sh- more squat, barrel-chested, possibly with a, with a very high-pitched voice. As I said, Floresiensis, these very small humans. It's real sci-fi stuff for me, that the idea that it's, I, th- I suppose we can think of ourselves as quite exceptional as humans, as this sort of non-animal species, and it's a really good reminder that we are animal. And the idea of living on the same planet with different human species that are that are strikingly different to us. I, I'm very intrigued by what that would be like today, for example, if you know, if we hadn't sort of bred Neanderthals out of existence as as it seems we probably did. What would that be like today? And I suppose if we do compare it to, to, to now, we're we're seeing increasingly, you know, the mainstream prevailing wins appear to be that that, that we're seeing sort of dissolution of, of racial boundaries as significant to how we conduct ourselves. So perhaps we would live in a world in which, incidentally, your co-worker is a Neanderthal or is a, is a, is a Denisovan. But in any case, I think it, 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 it's pretty alien to our idea, alien being, I suppose, the appropriate word, to our vision of ourselves as a species, as to what might make us different to somebody down the road or, or what we might have in common with somebody from a different country. Now, I want to open this series with and just, just this idea, because having the more I've read about it, the more I've come to think that in the, the relatively recent past, this story that I'm going to take you through happened about 2,000 years ago. For the Romans, I think that the scenario that I've just described of living in a, a diverse set of human species, that's actually, I think, a lot, that would be a lot more familiar to them than our way of thinking about diversity or about uh, what might make us similar or different to somebody from a different country or a different part of the world. The 6th century Roman historian Procopius had this to say about Britain. He said, quote, In this island of Britia, the men built a long wall, cutting off a large part of it, and the air and the soil and everything else is different on the two sides of it. For to the east of the wall there is healthy air, and many men dwell there, and the crops flourish. But on the other side everything is the opposite of this. Innumerable snakes and all kinds of wild beasts occupy the place as their own, 
and the natives say that if a man crosses the wall and goes to the other side, he forthwith dies, unable to bear the pestilential nature of the air, end quote. <laughs> now that, I suppose, is backing up, I suppose, the idea of, uh, of southeastern exceptionalism, the London elite living on the good side of that wall, the uh, Cumbrians living certainly on the, on the wrong side of that wall, down in Cornwall. You die instantly if you step over that wall, I've heard, full of snakes. The story that I'm going to take you through takes place in Britain, and I think that sums up beautifully the, the way that if we're trying to get ourselves into the mind of a, of a Roman, that that is how they're thinking about these, these places. That's the perspective they're bringing to this. So this is the setting for this season's story, and its subject is a native denizen of this terrifying and alien island, Queen Boudicca. Welcome back for Pedestals Season 2, Episode 1, The First Britannia. So, Boudicca. Or Bodicea. Boudicca. Sometimes Bodicea. It's a made up to matter. I pronounce it Boudicca. Boudicca. Boudicea. Boudicca. Boudicca. I, I always thought it was Bodicea. Boudicca. Boudicca. Bodicea. Boudicca. Who knows? I choose Boudicca. Boudicca. That sounds a bit like a joke. Boudicca was a Roman. English. A Scottish. She was Queen of the Iceni. In early Britain. I'm not even sure who the Britons were. She was a top Essex girl. And I since found out that I don't even think she was Scottish. Chariots. A lady in a chariot. Big chariot. Which, as we all know, had nice fastened to the wheels. She had red hair. Crazy hair. Long red hair. Tangled up with Britannia. A plus-sized lady. <laughs> with a Union Jack shield. She was like the first female war lady. Combined all the tribes. She united them against somebody. The Romans. I feel like if she'd won, we'd know more. Maybe if she was a man with no more, but hey. I think she killed her kids. Think she was the first ever feminist. I hope she was a feminist. The talk about Christina Rossetti, Jane Austen, Jane Eyre for that matter. Queen Boudicca was the original proto-feminist. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to this second season of Pedestals. Um, I'm... I'm delighted to be recording this because, as you can probably imagine, the second season is, well, it's the difficult second album, um, and it feels like we're here for good. Thank you very much for coming back and um, and joining me once again. For those of you who haven't listened yet and who are just intrigued by the title of this season or something, this is a podcast about telling those, those sort of A-list stories from our national past, from our national history, that we often take for granted and that that have taken up a good amount of space in our sort of psyche as a nation, difficult word as that is, but, but, but I think they knock around in our head and, and they, to some extent, without our permission, divine the way we think about ourselves and the, the way we think about lots of things. And I want to take you, you through that, those stories in, in detail so that you really understand what it is that we're talking about and have a good think about, about the place that they've come to take uh, in the backs of our minds. Now, these stories are often uh, memorialised, as I've said before, with statues. They're often the, the form that they take in our public spaces, the way that these, these stories are, are you know, regularly reminded to us over and over again. And the statue of Boudicca, or the, or the most famous one, I suppose, there's, there's plenty of them, but the most, the most famous of sta- statue of Boudicca is, is kind of outside Parliament Square. It's, it's by a guy called Thomas Thornycroft. 
It was actually designed in the 1850s, and you can kind of, it doesn't take much thinking to see that this is partially, it's kind of an analogue for Queen Victoria, um, who was obviously on the throne at the time and, and who loved the, the initial designs for this statue. The portrayal of Boudicca on this statue actually looks a little bit like a young Queen Victoria, um, and, and Boudicca actually translates to victory. So th- there's some quite obvious similarities there. It wasn't actually erected, however, until uh, 1902, where uh, after Thornycroft had died, Thornycroft's son raised the money to cast it um, in bronze, and it was installed over a site which had kind of recently been excavated um, and had been called Bodicea's grave. Uh, it was definitely not actually her grave, but it seemed like a sort of fitting a fitting place to put it up. And the statue depicts Boudicca as this really impressive woman on a, on a scythe-wheeled chariot. Her arms are, are sort of up in the air as if she's sort of exhorting a crowd to battle or whatever. Uh, she has a, a big spear in her hand. Her much smaller daughters are sort of nestled at her feet in, a, in her sort of protective aura. Um, all of them are, are bare-breasted, which is I guess maybe a reflection of our, you know, artistic norms of the time of a kind of neoclassical look. Um, but I think it's also reflective of the salience of gender within the way that this story has has resonated since then, and well, and and in the story itself. But despite this nudity, which I suppose might be to suggest a sort of vulnerableness, the statue does not give the impression of a vulnerable victim. It gives the impression of a an awe-inspiring and quite scary leader. Uh, she's it, she's on a chariot. And she's got these two, the two horses are sort of pouring the air, looking quite ferocious, much more wild than you you typically see in, in equestrian statues. Notably, nobody appears to be driving the chariot either. Nobody's holding the reins, um, which also is perhaps a, a fitting visual metaphor. And the inscription on the statue reads: "Bodicea, Queen of the Iceni, who died AD 61 after leading her people against the Roman invader." And that fittingly sets up a lot of the strands that we're going to see in the story of this woman. She was a leader of her people, and she was facing the invader to the island. That's the way that we've seen this story, and I think one of the main ways that it's stayed in our imagination. Now, I just I want to whip through, I, I, again, for new listeners, I, I thought it would be a good idea, if this is about the way that we, we see these stories, to, to, to kind of gather the impressions of the public, the general public, in the form of my friends and family. And they've, they've all sent me their ideas, their associations, what they know about Boudicca. And I just want to skim through those. You heard some of them at the start in the sort of opening credits. I, th- I think significantly for UK listeners, this is a subject that a lot of us covered in primary school. You know, within, within the remit of this podcast, I think that seems quite telling, actually. These, the, these subjects that we cover in primary school are, are obviously subjects that are considered foundational enough that they are one of the, you know, the starting points for teaching small children the beginnings of their historical story. And I suspect, I mean, I suspect it's also taught in primary schools as it's, 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 it's a compelling story. It's quite a narratively neat story as well. Um, one of the subjects of my survey actually responded with a reminiscence of dressing up as Boudicca for, for a sort of Roman day. I think she said she turned her parents' um, curtains into a lovely uh, robe. And this whole subject does have great cosplay value. That's something that quite um, appealing for teaching this in primary school, for, for getting little kids dressed up either as Romans or as Celts or, or whatever. We get some quite strong visual images of them. We also actually know little enough about it that we can get away with telling quite a straightforward narrative of the story without dumbing it down very much. You could tell this story in in kind of 20 minutes. Don't worry, I won't. I'll go into exhausting and excruciating detail. But you can tell it in about 20 minutes to, 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 to some kids and they'll get it. And you haven't actually cheated them of the, the meat of what, what's going on. It also has the flavour of the paradigm of nationhood. As I mean, as we saw, saw with, the, with that statue, 
after leading her people is part of the, the, the inscription on it. It kind of has the flavour of nationhood to it. It's fundamentally about the Britons versus the Romans. Well, that's the way that it can be painted quite easily. This is obviously kind of anachronistic. The nation certainly doesn't exist. England certainly doesn't exist. The UK definitely doesn't exist. But for kids, I think the idea of, of nations or even kind of teams squaring up fits within our modern way of looking at the world. And I think, I mean, that's why it's why it's a good thing to teach to kids or, or, or an easy thing to teach to kids. I think it's also actually why these it's stuck in our heads. It, it, we can tell ourselves, oh, it was us against the, the invaders. A lot of the public ideas um, of Boudicca seem to revolve around her appearance. We, I mean, the statue itself is, is quite a, a kind of striking appearance. Somebody's made some definite decisions about her. This itself, I think, it says a lot about how we view women in history. The fact that we we digest a lot of it through the idea of what what, what she looks like, whereas you know uh, Tacitus, who tells us this whole story, and is arguably a more historically significant figure. I don't think any of you could tell me what Tacitus looks like, or Paulinus, who is the the sort of main um, antagonist, I suppose, in this story. I doubt you could tell me what he looks like. In fact, there is a statue of him that I'll talk to you about, but it, it essentially looks like a generic Roman man, whereas her whole mystique and her whole thing is tied up with image. Um, she's usually seen as a red-haired woman, but, you know, that, that's, that's an idea that revolves around her. This is possibly a reflection of our kind of stereotypes of Celtic peoples, as we'll see that, that, that there's not actually anything really to, to base that on in the, in the sources. It also has a tie-in of sort of fieriness and, and, and being passionate, I suppose, which she's certainly both of those. One friend said a plus-sized lady, which is interesting. She, she is often depicted as very large uh, in, in height and in stature, it sort of justifies her status, I suppose, as a warrior. She is a she is a sort of Amazonian figure. The funny thing is, she doesn't really do any fighting herself in the story that we can see. She's she's definitely imagined as impressive and imposing. There's this idea of the scythe chariot. That's a common one, uh, along with actually the simultaneous knowledge that it's not true. People often say, "Oh, she has, she rode a scythe chariot," but we know that's not true. Um, it's quite a neat myth to kind of debunk. Uh, the scythes, I think, represent a point of of sort of blood bloodthirsty fascination. Uh, again, for for primary school kids, that's quite a that's quite a cool thing to think about. More broadly, I think it, it represents a sort of vicious, a genius for violence that we ascribe to historical air quotes barbarians. As a sidebar, that's something that we do, I think, across history. Uh, even even if you just look at like uh, like westerns, you know, cowboys and Indians films, Native Americans are sort of seen as as peace loving Zen terminators, capable of sort of killing ten men in total silence. Um, and it's definitely something that we ascribe to the Celts as sort of in incredibly savage. This is also very very much a you know Romans. The Romans would have had had this perspective as well on on barbarians as as capable of extreme violence. In fact, more capable of violence than they were. Ironically, as we'll see, it's, it's really the, the Romans have this genius for violence. However, theirs is, is, I suppose, a more coldly calculated one rather than the sort of flamboyant scythe chariot flavour of violence. Identity was a really big part of, of people's impressions of Boudicca. The Iceni, the Iceni pops up as a, as a name, which is correct. Um, this is, however, placed all over the shop where, where the Iceni are and where Boudicca is from. Northumbria, Scotland, England, Wales. No, I don't think anyone said Ireland, but, but it really is placed all over the, the island of Britain. And I think that's because this is a story about some idea of a native or original people. Um, and this idea is, is, is still evidently significant to us. And I think everyone sort of wants to claim this 
as their own. I think, I mean, we'll definitely go into this, but this says quite a lot, I think, about, you know, the, the constituent nations that make up the United Kingdom now, that definitely, you know, some of them would see themselves as more authentically belonging to the island or more authentically Celtic. Her actions were, were, were something that people knew a good amount about. Um, fighting the Romans, fighting the Saxons was an alternative. Definitely fighting. She is a figure of violence, perhaps excessive violence. Um, people had broad knowledge that she had lost a battle significantly, but also an amorphous sense that she had contributed to the halting of an advance of an invader or throwing back this advance. She's also associated, and I, I suppose in a linked sense, with various lots of female figures throughout history. So Britannia, the, he's obviously not a real female figure, but, but the, the symbol of Britannia, this woman with a helmet and a, and a trident and a shield and so forth. Elizabeth I as another famous redhead, I suppose. Um, as we'll see, Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May, the, the, she, she repeatedly comes up as a point of sort of rhetoric, a rhetorical comparison. Most essentially, though, it is Britannia. And I think it sort of she sort of functions in the same way as St. Michael does for the Spanish. Hello, listener. Peter here, uh, editing the episode, obviously making some corrections. I think I mean St. James here, not St. Michael. Um, I think they like St. Michael as well in in Spain, but uh, St. James. This sort of elemental spirit of the nation that rises up whenever the sceptred isle is under threat from the outside forces. I, I sort of didn't know where to begin this metaphor, actually, as to whether to begin it with Britannia or to begin it with Boudicca, because it's difficult to see which one even is the is the originator of this idea. But it certainly, I think, gives rise to or feeds this sense of Britain as an untouchable, uh, perhaps a sort of indivisible entity, distinct from the rest of Europe. Is she a feminist icon? That was one of the kind of central... I I kind of knew this would come up, uh, the idea that she's the first feminist, a proto-feminist. I'm definitely not going to tackle this right now because there are lots of layers to this element of the resonance of this story. But but possibly this is another reason that this is taught in primary schools. It's, it's on the most fundamental level a story about an upset in the typical historical narrative. It foregrounds a woman who takes agency and is sort of centre stage the protagonist in the narrative, hero or not, heroine or not. She, she is the subject of the story and, well, not the subject of the story, she is the agent of change, of, of activity within the story. Now the name. This is the last part that I want to talk about in terms of people's, people's takes on Boudicca, the name. I'm going to clear this up right now. All of my respondents had an opinion on this. Every single one had an opinion on whether it's Boudicca or Boudicca. Um, we've actually we've actually had a vast ar- of, array of, of different names other than Boudicca or Boudicca throughout history. Um, Boudicca's reintroduction into the historical picture happened in the sort of, I guess, what we call early modern or, or sort of Renaissance with the discovery of, of lots of these texts um, in Italy. Um, and since then, or indeed in these texts, we get Vodica Bonduka, Buddha, Bonda, Voda, Budoika, uh, which is, that's kind of the Greek take on it, I suppose. Um, people far wiser and more learned than me have basically agreed that Boudicca is the correct pronunciation. So my commiserations to those of you who, who were backing Bodice here, it's Boudicca, I'm sorry. That is in terms of how the language would have sounded, uh, in terms of the Celtic pronunciation. I'm not going to pretend to be able to explain how exactly we know that. Richard Hingley and Christina Unwin, who, who wrote a fantastic book called Boudicca, Iron Age Warrior Queen, which has been a real companion for this season, and, and I must credit, um, have actually taken a really nice decision to, to create the distinction between Boudicca to, re- to refer to the historical person, or what we know of the historical person, and Boudicca to refer to the, the various forms of this woman that through the ages have been told as a story, the way that she's been co-opted or vilified in various eras, that Boudicca is our fictionalised version of her. Now, beginning this story, we do have to start this from a, a Roman point of view, and that might seem perverse 
as they are the invaders, they, they, they are traditionally the antagonists of this story. But, but before the Roman invasion in AD 43, really Britain is, is prehistoric in the, in the strictest sense of that word. Nothing is written down. Um, just to skirt a bit of a rabbit hole that I'll probably fall down later, I do understand the Druids actually, you know, did possibly have a written script based on the names of trees or something. I mean, it's, it's very intriguing. Possibly written on trees, I've heard. Uh, but, but they were essentially forbidden from writing anything down. So uh, <laughs> it's not very helpful to have a language if you can't write anything down. But there we go. So we, we, we have to start this from a, from a, Roman, a Roman perspective. As I said, as, as, as we heard from that quote from Procopius uh, at the beginning, the Romans had a very an incredibly sort of exoticist view of peoples outside of their borders. Um, they quite a useful way of understanding it perhaps is they had this specific term for Gaul. They called they called the the, the closer part of Gaul short-haired Gaul, so southern southern France, uh, Provence, whatever, and the further part, Brittany, Belgium, long-haired Gaul. And that's literally to say that you know these are the short-haired Gauls are are kind of by degrees a bit less far off on the barbarian scale. They're a bit more like us. They've adopted more of our customs. Long-haired Gaul is where they get scarier and scarier and scarier and more and more sort of bestial and more and more Celtic. And that's because the Roman Empire is a, is a is a, as much a kind of cultural empire as it is a, a military one. But that's probably a massive a massive claim to make. It might not be true at all. But it but it's a it's a kind of cultural centre, you know, and it, and it exports its culture in quite an attractive way because it has loads of luxuries, it has loads of nice things, and through trade and through proximity and through travel, you get a Romanizing effect. If if that's for the Gauls, if we you know know our basic geography, Britain is beyond that, and it's beyond some water as well. So, so it's sort of the extremity of long-haired Gaul. It's it's where these you know, bizarre creatures live, these men who are barely men. We get Roman sources referring to Britons generally as, you know, as brutes, inhuman, savage, tent-dwelling, living on milk and meat, cannibalistic, naked, uh, eating bark, living in swamps. There's this idea of, of I suppose, the, the Britons as almost a, like a more primordial version of humanity. Um, and that's, that's both... I mean, a positive and a negative, those are hopelessly uh, general terms to use in these, but but that's both seen as they are sort of subhuman, they are less than than us Romans, but it's also to say they're sort of, you know, basically saying, well, we Romans, we we couldn't live in tents, we couldn't just live on milk and meat, we couldn't eat bark and live in swamps, because we've lost some of that toughness, we've lost some of the thing that makes us kind of virile um, and animal. So there's a, there's an element of, of disdain, but there's also a massive element of fear in it. The idea of eating bark and living in swamps, um, it, it kind of reflects this suggestion that agriculture hadn't yet made its way to Britain. That's definitely not true. The image of pre-Roman Britain, I suppose, given by that is something that exists only in the context of the coming Roman invasion, a backwards place that is going to become civilised. And that kind of comes from a, a Roman and indeed a Victorian idea of how empire should work, of how you know colonies should should work, and I suppose the rightness of them, the progress that they give. I think one of the most telling uh, terms that we have is is modest and free of luxury. I really annoyingly haven't written down who that who that was, but it's probably Tacitus. Modest and free of luxury, and that is such a double edged way of talking about a people. That's it's it, it's I think deeply suggestive of, of virtue, of a sort of an innate human virtue um, in not having all of these great things that we Romans have. Now, what we do actually know about Iron Age Britain is, as I said, is, is pretty much entirely 
archaeological. It's what's found in the ground, and it's quite mysterious, so we've got to do some speculating. Um, the, the Roman idea, and actually ideas since then, have suggested that it was actually quite united, that it was sort of under some sort of mythic original over-king. Uh, there was the idea that it was ruled by giants, um, that it was ruled by by Trojans, that the Trojans, after the siege of Troy, Brutus comes and sets up a new you know, colony um, for the Greeks. These are all competing kind of ideas about a, a pre-Roman England um, and perhaps, you know, perhaps a sort of pre-Roman England that we might return to, Albion, as it's called. Um, the, 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 the competing idea is one of an, a kind of an egalitarian society. That's also a very popular one and is significant to, to, to our idea of, of this story um, in that it offers a sort of a, a better time before the Romans. One of the big archaeological features we have are hill forts, um, and that's because they're literally massive. Um, they are these ginormous, uh, what just look like hills if you don't look at them carefully, um, but they're, they're man-made or man-augmented hills um, that often enclose sort of a 10 or 20 acre strong point at the top, um, used either, it seems, as sort of um, permanent-ish settlements or more likely actually looking like sites of, of food surplus storage or periodic military use. For our purposes, though, the important thing is they are massive building projects requiring a huge amount of labour, of man-hours. Um, and that could suggest really highly centralised power of an, a, you know, a king who can command, or a queen or whatever, who can command uh, huge numbers of people to do whatever they fancy. Alternatively, though, there's been a suggestion that it, it could actually suggest a sort of commu communal sort of consensus style society in which everyone decides well we've got excess food and we we don't want some, our next door neighbors to come and nick it so we're going to build this thing that's backed up by the idea we don't actually see a huge disparity in the size or nature of homes roundhouses that that iron age britons lived in again suggesting there might not really have been that stratified a society women rulers um are often cited as an example of this kind of greater equality across society we've got Boudicca, cartamandua who's a, a, a contemporary actually the romans claim that this is common they also claim it's common within all barbarian societies and is a sign of the sort of uh, moral uh, laxity of these societies. It's unclear if this is a, a generalisation taken from these two. Um, however, what we can, we can confidently say it is less misogynistic than Roman society. However, that is not exactly the Bechdel test. That is not a particularly good benchmark that you want to be aiming for. We do have some status items. There's, um, there's kind of horse... For what we call horse furniture, uh, which is bits of, you know, riding bits and, and harnesses and so forth. Um, Jewellery, torques, which I'm going to talk about. Some of the weaponry suggests that, that this is certainly a, a society in late Iron Age Britain that's sort of dominated by a warrior aristocracy. Tacitus actually mentions Boudicca's torque. Um, a torque is a an incredible thing. They are, I think they're, they're, they're arguably could be seen as the sort of, well, they're, they're certainly the most eye-catching, a sort of defining find archaeologically you can go to the british museum and see there's probably about 20 or 30 of them in a in a case and they're these really chunky neck ornaments a sort of a big a massive bracelet that you'd wear around your neck and they're made out of usually out of gold or electrum or silver or whatever and they're they're just an incredible status symbol because they it's a way of showing an incredible amount of wealth on your body it may also be a way of kind of carrying your your bank account around with you uh, because you don't want to leave it back in your hut um these hill forts um and these weapons do obviously suggest violence a warring kind of thing what roman sources suggest that fighting is really common in barbarian cultures and that's 
often define the way that we think about these these peoples. However, Roman sources can necessarily only comment on societies that they're in contact with, that they know anything about. And the thing they tend to ignore is the fact that a global superpower like Rome moving in, into the area, moving into the neighbourhood, may be contributing to the violence and the displacement and the unrest and the things that they see. So it, without realising it, they may actually be re- be just recording the effect of, of Rome on societies. Um, it's very like the, the settlers on the east coast of North America. They turn up and they kind of stay relatively close to the coast for a, for a few decades. And then by the time they go inland, they, there's kind of nobody there. And that's because everyone's already died. The diseases have spread much faster than the settlers. But the settlers have this idea, and we, it still sustains today. We think of the Sioux or the Iroquois or whatever as, you know, bands of 20 or 30 people out on the out on the empty plains. And actually, that's a lifestyle that had, that's been created by the arrival of Europeans into America. Um, very similarly, I think, there's an argument to be said, I think, that Rome's effects would have been felt a long time before historians got there to, to write anything down. In any case, we can definitely establish that the, the, the Britons before the Romans arrived were not living in swamps, they weren't eating bark. They were pretty prosperous, agricultural, pastoral society. They were actually already using coins before the Romans turn up. These coins are they're an interesting sign, as I said, of the idea that, that Rome's influence precedes it because they they look like Roman coins. They're quite confusing in that sense. They've got a kind of, you know, that Roman style sort of sideways head on them and they've got laurel wreaths on them and they've got even sort of semi-Latinate inscriptions on them and things like that. And that shows, I suppose, the, the, the cultural currency, the clout that you get from associating yourself with this, with these people. They were gold, they were, they were silver, they mostly probably weren't an everyday currency. Um, they were things like tribute and gifts and dowries and, and big money exchanges. But it is a moneyed society. It's fairly self-sufficient, as we seem to understand of Britain that it was it kind of was doing a bit of trading, but mostly these even within the tribes actually were kind of sustaining themselves. All of this is significant because I think when we look at Boudicca, it is implicit, true or not, that what she represents is a pre-Roman Britain, perhaps a sort of well a desired past that she is defending. Is it desirable? I, that's I think well we'll see. I would argue that any society looks egalitarian in comparison to its, you know, its phase of, of being colonially oppressed. I think we could, you could probably say that of pretty much anywhere that's been a colony at some point. I, I, frank, I don't imagine that a pre-Roman Celtic Britain in you know, the year naught would say, I love this egalitarian society, it's so great, we've cracked it, it's free of oppression, I'm having a lovely time. However, I do imagine their grandchild in AD 50 probably would have been thinking, I wish we could go back to the good old days. Now, one of the, the central questions is, is who was there? Who was there before the Romans? Who were these people? And the short answer to that is Celts. Um, the, the Celtic culture group spans from Spain or Portugal through to Turkey. So it's, it's pretty massive. And I don't, I mean, it tricks us into thinking that all of these people could thought of themselves as Celts. Um, or, or as b- belonging to some broader thing. What it is, is a, a, the, the term culture group basically means a, a group of characteristics of traditions of material culture. These things include very loosely wearing trousers, uh, plaid, uh, bagpipes. That's a Turkish thing that's also in Scotland. Um, a warrior culture. Uh, Nick Field, who's again one of the historians I've been reading on this, says, quote, Celt was a general purpose name applied by Greco-Roman writers to a mobile warlike population group occupying lands mainly north of the Mediterranean region from Galicia in the west to Galatia in the east, end quote. So it's, it's, it's basically all of Europe. 
There is actually an increase in, in genomic evidence, and this is quite a new field and it's, it's moving very quickly, so it's, it's very likely that what I'm about to say is going to be outdated very quickly or is already incorrect. But an idea of kind of relative ge genetic continuity in Britain before the Romans um, from the kind of 8th or 7th century BCE. So th th there is some validity to the idea that this is a sort of a genuinely sort of native population. Obviously, they're not sort of autochthonous jumping out of the ground. They had to have come from somewhere. Uh, but there's a pretty good claim to, to these people actually being sort of the, the sort of custodians of this island. And there's probably about one or two million of them uh, at the time of the Roman invasion. Now, in order to uh, understand why this is happening, I'm aware I have a habit of just going back and back and back in time to give to give more and more context. But this is this is important context. We need to know a little bit about the Roman Empire and about what it was doing at this time, the shape it was in. I'm not going to give you the whole story. But um, if we, we start this story with Claudius's invasion of Britain in 43 AD, that's the Emperor Claudius. This is a quick tour of what the Roman Empire looks like at this time. The first significant thing is it's an empire. Uh, it's, it's, it's moved relatively recently out of quite a, well, a very long period, a few hundred years of being a republic or a plutocracy or whatever you want to call it with a senate, uh, to being an empire with an emperor. First under Augustus, then under Tiberius, then Caligula, and now Claudius. It's already pretty much as big as the empire is going to get. It, it kind of changes shape and size for, for, for the next couple hundred years, and it adds bits and it takes bits off. But it pretty much is covering everything that you'd see on a map of, you know, the Roman Empire at its greatest extent. The entire coast of the Mediterranean is is Roman. Uh, the Danube and the Rhine form its sort of northern border. The Atlantic Ocean forms its western border. The Sahara Desert forms its southern border. And in the east, it's reached a balance with the Parthians. So that leaves us quite neatly with the only bit, the only bit that can be can be added onto that is is Britain, arguably. But why invade? Caraticus, who's the who's the sort of British freedom fighter who leads the resistance to 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 the invasion to after Claudius's invasion, famously said, well, or Dio, Cassius Dio, one of the historians that we're going to use in this in this story, gives him this line, quote, You have so much, why do you covet our poor huts? End quote. And that's echoed through the ages really as a as a sort of question that can be asked of empire throughout history. And is a you could say a very very valid question. Why 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 the hell would the Romans want to come to this rainy rainy island with a couple of million people living in poor huts? Uh, Nick Fields has a, a good answer to that. Um, he says, "quote Roman imperialism was not concerned with poor huts, but with rich fields." End quote. So I mean that gives us the idea that basically Rome was there to extract resources, slaves, silver, and cattle, basically in order to balance the books of of the cost of occupying it that's you know if we're looking at it as an economic proposition a province has to be a net gain for, for the empire otherwise it's kind of pointless as augustus quite probably quite wisely concluded britannia was a province beyond what he thought of as the natural bounds of the empire josephus who's a, a roughly contemporary um historian remarked quote what wall could be a better obstacle than the open sea that is the bulwark of britannia end quote so this idea that kind of we're we're going out of our way to pick a fight that we do not have to pick that's going to cost us a lot if we go there, so it wasn't viewed as by the Romans as a kind of juicy prize. After it was conquered, Dio actually remarked um, of a of a, an officer who was receiving a, a, a punishment. Quote: Verus did not put him to death, but merely sent him to Britannia. End quote. So it gives you an, an idea of how they saw it. It's a symbolic place into of of otherness, um, of 
of somewhere tough and difficult and that you wouldn't want to be and that frankly might not be worth having. So again, why invade? The first thing to understand about the Roman Empire generally, but de definitely in the late Republic and in the, in the imperial periods, is that it's, it isn't a nation moving in one direction in the way that we would think of nations nowadays. We can't therefore usually understand Roman actions in terms of kind of realpolitik, in terms of the best thing for the nation to move forward. And in fact, we, we can't really understand things as the actions of Rome at all, because it isn't a monolithic thing taking actions, rather the actions of individuals within the Roman system. Roman power politics is a real bucket of crabs. The, the, the setup in terms of the, the incentives and the goals had created a system, possibly the system that created the, the, the Roman Empire as it was in Roman power, that you basically have a load of nobles desperately striving for public recognition, public honour, family honour, and those sorts of things. A huge amount of what goes on, the actions of Roman players, relates to, the, to, to individual prestige and to the ability to accrue honour and power and money. Though even money is, 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 is well, I think really within the Roman thing is, is, is a lever to more honour and more power. So often an, an action is undertaken in the provinces, not really for an, a desired effect in the provinces, but in order to move an individual's piece further forward, you know, one step further forward on the, on the chessboard, up the ladder, the slippery pole in Rome, if that metaphor makes any sense at all. So that, that is, I think, the, the key thing for understanding why invade Britain. Britain is rich in things like tin and silver, but there's, well, I'm going to give you three reasons, providence, prestige and precedent. That's neat, isn't it? And it serves a purpose for each of the three Romans that attempt it, that, that fall under those categories. Three Romans do, do attempt it. And the first is Julius Caesar. So this is missing lots of detail. But the first attempt made by Julius Caesar, or rather two attempts at invasion, were made by Julius Caesar in 55 and 54 BC, about 100 years before our story takes place. Both of these ultimately fail to occupy the island, though he, he takes some hostages. I'm not going to go into detail why that happens. But it's significant that the mighty Julius Caesar tried and failed. And his reason for trying, I think, kind of partially was one of convenience, though this is the Providence one. Caesar was basically on a crazy do-or-die gamble. He's, he was basically acting without, without any authority. This is in the very end of the Republican period. So the Senate back at home has kind of said, we, you don't have any power to be doing what you're doing. And also what he's doing is very obviously dangerous to the, the, the existence of, of democracy. People see him as a, as a, threat, a threateningly powerful, capable, uh, popular figure. However, so long as he sustains himself out in the field and so long as he keeps on winning successes, he can keep on writing home and, this, and he kind of retains his immunity whilst he's out there with his army. And he, but he has to justify staying out there with his army because otherwise it suddenly looks like, well, hold on, Julius, why do you have this personal army that you're marching around with? Give it back to the state or let it disband or whatever. But he, he needs to justify it in order to, to retain his power. By this point, he's kind of running out of rope. He's, he's conquered Gaul and, in huge, well, he's basically, he's, he, he's under threat of, of litigation once he goes back to Rome for all sorts of things, countless kind of political crimes and debt. As soon as he gives up his immunity, he's going to be completely put through the ringer. So he needs an excuse to stay out in the field and continue to, to, to wield what's called proconsular author authority. Basically, he's a kind of free agent who can do what he likes, and it grants him uh, immunity from prosecution. And he sort of says, well, the Britons are a terrible threat I've got to go and sort them out. He writes back to the Senate saying that. And it's not really clear if they are or not, but it's a very convenient reason to stay out there. 
and he's not successful, but he does get these hostages. And from this point forward, and likely actually before this point, but there is a there is a kind of a degree of political, cultural, commercial interchange between Rome and the Britons that lots of these particularly southern British kingdoms are sort of in thrall to Romans. They're sort of semi-client kingdoms or they're there with backed with Roman money. And Rome is beginning to put its sort of sticky fingers into what's going on in Britain. So it's basically, it's no longer a mist-shrouded blob on the edge of the map. It's sort of within the Roman sites. The next attempt happens almost a century later. So Rome has become an empire. Julius Caesar has been stabbed to death. So they've had the long, they've had the long successful reign of Augustus. We've had the very the short and bloody reign and sexually perverse reign of Tiberius. And then we get one of the, the top mad emperors. This is a great thing about Rome and about Roman history is you get the really mad ones first. Well, or near, near the start. You get some good ones later on as well. But, but Gaius, who we know as Caligula, is, I think, probably tops out the list. But anyway, he's this perfect storm of a huge ego and massive, arguably justified paranoia and insecurity. Caligula drew a lot of his initial power base from his popularity in the army. And in fact, Roman emperors, you know, really throughout throughout um, the history of the empire did that. And some of the more successful ones realised you just you need to pay the army in order to stay in power. He had actually been with the army as a child with his, his father, Germanicus, and he had become a sort of a mascot um, for the army, his name Caligula actually is a reference to this. It means little boots, which are a reference to his tiny replica legionary boots that he would wear. Um, so he's a kind of a darling of the army, and Tiberius was was a real bastard. So so Caligula comes as this kind of golden boy that's going to fix it all. However, that wears off quite swiftly. I won't go into the. I really want to, but I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of crazy things that Caligula did in order to turn everyone off. But in AD forty he attempted to mount an invasion of Britain. And he's very, as I said, he's past the honeymoon period of, of not being Tiberius and was pretty obviously awful. In, in AD 40, the exiled son of a British king, Ademinius, had fled to Caligula and basically gave him the perfect opportunity to exert himself. So there was some, some skullduggery power politicking go, going on in, in Britain that we don't know a huge amount about. And Ademinius, this guy, gets exiled, and he thinks, I'll just run to the find refuge. But Caligula takes this story and uses it. He essentially said, Ademinius, of course, was the rightful king, which we, Ademinius may not have even been saying that himself, but Caligula says, oh, it's so good to see you, Ademinius, the rightful king of the Britons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and totally help you out. And, and his being here is kind of giving Britain to Rome, is saying, well, actually, I'm, I'm needing your protection. I want to be in the Roman Empire so that, so that you can keep me safe. So Caligula, of course, wouldn't actually be invading Britain. No, he would be, he would be chucking out the unlawful occupiers of his territory. Which, so it's a kind of perfect PR opportunity to, to reassert himself as a successful and rightful and just ruler. And he assembled a massive army and a huge fleet, um, and the army refuses to embark and that says a lot about how hated Caligula was but I think it says also a huge amount as I said about the vision of this island of Britain that the reports be they just said we're not going over there to that terrible place full of giants and snakes and poisonous vapors that are going to kill us and we're terrified of it they're actually they're also terrified of of the ocean of Oceanus you know the Mediterranean they kind of viewed as a as a big friendly lake that doesn't really have tides and is relatively speaking not so stormy and those kinds of things the, the the ocean the atlantic ocean of the english channel was viewed with with kind of awe and terror and so they refused to embark and caligula forces them 
famously to gather seashells as kind of the spoils of war. He says this, you know, that that's the loot that we've gathered. And he declares this great victory over Oceanus. And he probably, I mean, that sounds really mad. He probably does this as a sort of humiliation to the legions. I think he does it with a degree of, of self-awareness that it's to say, well, if you're such great warriors, then here's your bounty. Um, he then also pays them four gold coins each for their victory um, to sort of buy their loyalty. So that's peak Caligula being sort of petty and, and crawling and scathing um, at the same time. Anyway, Caligula pretty swiftly gets violently unthroned and Claudius takes his place. Now, it's, it's relevant to this story that Claudius was a very unlikely figure for an emperor. We don't want to take entirely, you know, Robert Graves' account as gospel, but he was, you know, he was, he was by all accounts, kind of crowned semi-ironically perhaps by his by the Praetorian Guard, who were the kind of emperor's guards, um, and then it kind of stuck. And he was the only one supposedly who hadn't been killed from the Julio-Claudian line because he was so unlikely. Um, he was by all accounts pretty kind of physically unimpressive. He probably had a, a club foot. He suffered from, from ticks um, and a stammer probably. Um, he apparently employed a, a full-time slave to remind him what he had been talking about because he was so sort of absent-minded. Um, and he was a kind of scholarly figure which is very much not the model of, of Roman emperors. Significantly, he had absolutely no military credits at all to his name. Uh, most Roman aristocrats and, and people who end up being emperor had at least sort of served with legions for a time and put in their, their hours so that they can claim to be essentially a military ruler, which is, which is what they are. And, and legitimacy at this time was still very much tied to military success. In the pre-imperial, you know, the Republican era, the consuls, who were the yearly rulers of Rome, had actually been elected primarily or initially as generals for the armies. So there is a really deep link between the political and the military, and this had sustained through the Trump transformation from republic to empire to, to enthrone the emperor as the sort of just the, well, the, as the commander in chief. So Claudius really needed prestige to secure himself and to shake the image of being a crippled and sort of unmartial emperor and significantly he, he wants the right to have a triumph a triumph is sort of the greatest party you could possibly throw but there are really strict political laws and rules about when you're allowed to throw said triumph it has to be over for, for a great victory a great military victory the senate has to sort of decide yes that's worthy of a triumph supposedly it needed to have at least five thousand dead enemies in order to celebrate one um supposedly you know you could only have one in your lifetime but if he could celebrate one, he kind of gets this great public show of his legitimacy. Um, but he needs to satisfy certain things to do this. So once again, Britain is a sort of comes into the picture as, oh, that's a convenient place that might allow me to, 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 to keep myself alive in this, as I said, bucket of crabs of political machination. Now, there's this guy, Cuno Bellin, um, who is a British king, roughly sort of of modern Sussex and had been for the past sort of 40 years a, a staunch Roman ally, a client king, and he had died in AD 42, I think. And his sons, Togodumnus and Caraticus, who's going to come back into the story, were basically storming around, invading other British kingdoms, stirring up the political map, uh, not being the lovely, peaceful, cooperative client king that Cunobelin had been. And this gave Claudius, a little bit like with Caligula, to be honest, a, a perfect pretext for invasion to say, well, this is now a, a dangerous, this is a terrorist state over our border. We've got to go in and we've got to sort it out. He already, conveniently also, basically had the preparations in place from Caligula's invasion three years previously that hadn't taken place. However, once again, the legions get to their transport ships on the English Channel, at, uh, Boulogne or somewhere like that, 
and they refuse to embark. And it's for the same reasons. We think it's essentially we don't want to go. We don't want to go to this. And also, I mean, there's arguments about the military getting kind of overmighty and thinking, well, if we got a choice, we would rather not go and fight a war. We would rather sit in camp and be paid and get big bonuses whenever a new emperor comes in who needs to buy our our loyalty. However, we get this possibly apocryphal story, but it's a good one, of Narcissus, who was one of uh, Claudius's kind of central advisors and a freedman, which means he used to be a slave. But freedmen could raise, rise quite high in sort of civil service, as it were, in, within Rome. And Narcissus was on the scene. Claudius wasn't. And he gets up and he, he addresses the assembled legions, kind of shaming them. And apparently a, an anonymous soldier hailed him, Eo Saturnalia, which was the phrase that was basically said at at Saturnalia, which was a sort of misrule day, a sort of day of, of reversal. And he was sort of pointing out the irony of a slave or a freedman, an ex-slave, addressing these free Romans and telling them what to do. And apparently this really amused all of the legionaries, and they thought, yeah, go on then, we'll, we'll do it, that's funny. Now, Claudius' invasion was actually carried out mostly by a guy called Aulus Plautius, and it was much more immediately successful than previous invasions. It, it, they kind of, and we don't know if that's because of the state of politics within Britain at the time, or, or it was better prepared or whatever, but Plautius establishes a beachhead. He fights a kind of few big battles. Um, he has a big engagement on the River Medway, during which uh, his his Germans, because he's got kind of auxiliaries from all over the empire, swum across the river apparently and surprised the Britons. And again, that's I mean, going right back to what we started this with this this idea of kind of racial specialization that Germans are particularly good at swimming over rivers in the night, and that's their special ability. And he wins that. He wins the battle on the River Medway and he fights up through the southeast of England. And at some point, Togo Dumnus, one of those two sons of Cunobelin, uh, dies, is killed. However, Aulus Plautius gets sort of fought to a standstill, supposedly. Roman accounts say, quote, Plautius became afraid and instead of advancing further, proceeded to guard what he had already won and sent for Claudius, end quote. Now, th- this has pretty unanimously been interpreted as a bit of PR theatre. Plautius was obviously winning and it it wasn't generally in the Roman playbook to just stop and carefully consolidate and and think about your victories especially actually in this the bucket of crabs of Roman politics Plautius had a you know had a lot to gain there is a world in which Plautius goes and is doing it for his own prestige and to whatever get hailed emperor himself or whatever but Plautius is evidently a canny operator and has been briefed quite carefully and it's obviously been decided beforehand that Claudius needs to be required. Claudius needs to come and save the day once victory is pretty much assured. And Plautius is obviously thinking, well, there's maybe one more fight left in this and and we're definitely going to win it. There's no way that Claudius is going to get covered in shame by losing a battle. So Claudius makes his slow way to Britain, picking up some reinforcements with a a new force. Notably, he brings some elephants with him. If we're thinking about from from the British point of view, thinking about these alien invaders clad in complex metal armor and now bringing elephants... I mean, I, I think it's really difficult to imagine the, the, the sheer terror and awe that that would inspire somebody turning up with these, you know, essentially prestige animals. Let's say, I can bring elephants to the fight. What can you bring? There's no way you can even bother to resist me. And in Britain, as Dio claims, uh, Claudius captures Camulodunum, which is, is basically the main centre of population in southern Britain. It actually seemed possible that, that, that it was even actually just a reenactment of the storming of the town, that Camulodunum was potentially under Roman control already, and that they got some Britons to take their positions again so that Claudius could sort of reenact the, the fight. 
Um, and then Claudius accepts the surrender of various British kings, apparently 11 of them, well, possibly also Queen Cartamandua. And this had served every purpose that, that Claudius could possibly need. Um, he gets hailed as Imperator, which kind of means undefeated. Um, and he's conquered Britain and he's conquered Oceanus as well, the, the, the ocean, the channels. Significantly, he's gone where Julius Caesar could not. That's the, the precedent in my three Ps, which don't, don't really work. But precedent, you know, this was precedent as, as an island of full of giants that the mighty Julius Caesar couldn't capture. And I have now changed that. I, the mighty Claudius. The Senate gave him the title of Britannicus, which is kind of the, the you get Germanicus and you get um, Gallicus and Africanus and stuff as you've conquered this place. Um, he actually handed this on to his son and he came back to Rome and he celebrated a triumph. There's a triumphal arch still to this day that we can see parts of. Um, and it proclaims him as, quote, the first to bring barbarian peoples from across the ocean under the sway of the Roman people, end quote. They're not just saying he, he conquered Britain. They're saying it's peoples from across the ocean and they're the first peoples from across the ocean. So Britain as a choice is obviously significant. As a footnote to this, um, the other son of, of Cuno, Bellin Caraticus, who was not killed in the initial invasion, continued this kind of resistance campaign for several years in the Welsh mountains. He was eventually captured. He was captured by uh, Queen Cartamandua, who I mentioned, who was queen of the Brigantes, which is essentially sort of uh, Yorkshire, the north. And she made the she well, he he fled for safety to her, and she made the quite canny decision. Thinking, I don't I don't want to be involved with this, and he, she handed him over to, to to the Romans as a kind of gift. And he was brought back to Rome, and he makes he makes this fantastic speech. Well, or again. He kind of is given a fantastic speech, although it seems more likely that he actually said this one because there would have been actually lots of witnesses to this. And he says, quote, Had my moderation in prosperity been equal to my noble birth and fortune, I should have entered this city as your friend rather than as your captive, and you would not have disdained to receive under a treaty of peace a king descended from illustrious ancestors and ruling many nations. My present lot is as glorious to you as it is degrading to myself. I had men and horses, arms and wealth, what wonder if I parted with them reluctantly? If you Romans choose to lord it over the world, does it follow that the world is to accept slavery? Were I to at once have been delivered up as a prisoner, neither my fall nor your triumph would have become famous. My punishment would be followed by oblivion, whereas if you save my life, I shall be an everlasting memorial of your clemency. End quote. So he kind of stands up in front of Claudius and gives this defiant speech he doesn't really scrape and and claudius is kind of impressed by this and he lives out the rest of his days um, in rome as a sort of uh, guest uh, hostage but it does the, the speech itself and the fact that it, it's recorded and that the romans pass it on and don't seem to to hate it is shows you a little bit about what's going on in rome that there is there is a sort of a growing self-consciousness these are not people who are just blindly going about the business of empire there is a sort of meta conversation going on about well, what 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 are we doing? Why are we doing it? You know, what wonder if I parted with them reluctantly with his things? You know, he's, they, 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 they're obviously chroniclers within Rome who are thinking, well, what are we doing? You know, what? Of course, Romans are going to fight us. Should the world accept slavery? That's. I mean, they don't feel bad enough about it not to do it, but um, it shows a bit of the dialogue that's going on. So Britain has been conquered now by Claudius, and after Claudius dies in in fifty four A.D., he is succeeded by Nero the Antichrist, the beast, the one who fiddled as Rome burned. You may have heard of him. Um, again, one of, the, one of the top 
bad emperor, well, thought of as one of the top bad emperors. Actually, he's enjoying a little bit of a revival at the moment. Maybe he wasn't all that bad. But Claudius did have a son, as I mentioned, called Britannicus, who we might expect, you know, had a shot of becoming emperor himself. In one of those nice little twists that history gives us, sometimes when we're telling our narrative stories and make them hang together a little bit better, Nero usurps the throne from Britannicus, essentially. Britannicus, the conqueror of Britain, and we will see then Britain in our story comes to plague Nero by his erstwhile cousin's namesake island. So what was what was Roman rule like? After the initial invasion, Roman rule gets established either under these kind of loyal client kingdoms or direct military control. It's kind of patchwork of, of different things. And it's pretty much throughout the island of Britain as far north as the Humber and the Mersey. And north of that, you've got the Brigantes, who are this kind of very cooperative, large tribe under Queen Cartamandua. Now, as has been pointed out about any form of empire, and certainly is the case with Roman rule, there's this double-sided coin, civilization and slavery, of, of oppression and, and the civilizing effects of connection to the metropole. I mean, that conversation is, is, has advanced quite a long way, um, certainly in recent years. What Was it a positive or a negative? And, and modern thought, I think, has pretty roundly decided, through a sort of post-colonial lens, I suppose, that empire is fundamentally extractive that it's a zero-sum game, and if, if the, the, the empire wouldn't be there if it wasn't taking something out of the equation. If we wear our economist hat, Rome is benefiting, therefore the Britons must be losing. This aside, I mean, I think the enormous amount of violence and bloodshed and everything that it, that it brings, which we'll see over the next couple of episodes, are difficult to mitigate with some nice straight roads or some underfloor heating and now, there are three kind of major, you know, kind of possible areas why, why the Britons might not want to be under Roman rule. And that's aside from ideas of freedom and self-determination and sort of... The first one is, is money. The Romans very broadly, this is a massive generalisation, but tended to assert power with incredible military dominance initially. But that isn't sustainable always, you know, for, forever. You can't have your legions everywhere all at once. And they suddenly... They can't just suddenly replace all of the Britons with nice Italian peasant farmers... However, the goal, I suppose, is to kind of to, to slowly turn them into nice Italian peasant farmers or Italian-style peasant farmers who are going to pay their taxes and everything. They do this by offering a kind of attractive cultural package, particularly to the societal elites, wine and baths and things like that, and villas, uh, basically get them to buy into the Roman Empire, to think, well, this is, Roman rule perhaps better, is better for certain sections of society. It's not better for the overall, you know, for the aggregate, but probably a client king who does exactly what Rome wants them to do can live pretty high on the hog. Significantly for our story, though, this 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 also meant membership in in a set in a load of basically in religious cults. And these sort of functioned like kind of clubs uh, within Roman society. And what this meant for basic local British elites was buying into this culture package, but also buying into being uh, priests of these cults. You have to kind of subscribe, pay your subscription. Was massive debt, which they didn't really understand. We don't think they didn't. You know that. As I was talking about, it's a moneyed society, but it's not a society that transacts lots in money. And therefore, the idea of, you know, complex financial transactions of borrowing and money and certainly things like interest just wouldn't make any sense to them. And that's not to, to, to make them sound ignorant or, or stupid. It's just to say they're not Roman. So to get these benefits of Roman civilization, British elites have to have to buy them, have to literally import wine and import silk and all of those kinds of things. Coincidentally and conveniently, they had to buy them from Romans or from Romanized Gauls or whatever. You know, funny how that worked. And in order to fund this, some lovely agents turn up from Rome, very rich men, and helpfully extend lines of credit. So the Romans get out of this interest from loans and a load of basically a captive market. 
who they who, who can only buy the things that they're saying you need off the Romans. And that's, I mean, a bit of an analogue for how arguably how how empire has always functioned claudius personally was actually quite a big part of this famously seneca as well a kind of renowned roman philosopher statesman lent 40 million sesterces and i'm not going to do a kind of conversion amount into modern pounds or whatever but it's 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 an, it's an absolutely eye-watering sum of money to lent this all to british elites and as you can imagine this starts to rub the britons are not you know initially it's probably great to have wine and whatever but it, but the britons are not massively excited when the terms of their agreement are explained to them with a couple of decades of interest so that's money money's a problem secondly land land becomes a big problem pre-roman british settlements were what what what's called opida which is obviously a roman word in itself most of the british population was rural um but these central hubs were kind of the sites where where roman power came to assert itself because you've got to do it somewhere and it makes sense to do it where, the, where there's a concentration of population. And the Romans had a habit of basically turfing out local landholders quite arbitrarily, um, particularly amongst defeated tribes and giving the land to retired legionaries. And these colonists then formed a sort of localised population of oppressors, a sort of an extension of Romanness. Military veterans, largely, who often threw their weight around. Obviously, you've got a certain type of populace and demographic if we're talking about about military veterans, and they would lord it over local populations, as you would expect. These opida, the Romanized ones, became known as civitates, and they sort of function as, as a Roman sort of showtown, a sort of a transplanted bit of the Roman Empire to centralise Roman power in a province and also to kind of disseminate Roman culture and the comforts that it offers to, to, to that province to Romanize things. But land was basically, it was the, the kind of uh, the, the, the retirement package that was offered to legionaries on, but offered as a sort of... A, a, a recruitment incentive and you've got to get that land from somewhere so you get it from the from the defeated peoples and that obviously causes some resentments thirdly and this well I, this is a difficult one this is touchy because we know very little about it is religion we don't really know very much about pre-roman celtic religion it's shrouded in 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 issues and it's shrouded in our own projections of these things and it's shrouded in the in the roman ideas also of what we do know is that is that the sort of prevailing pan-celtic religion was druidic and that 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 means that there's this sort of class of people sort of separate class of people of these sort of political intellectual religious class of druids kind of keepers of this sacred knowledge who hold quite a lot of prestige and power within these societies who are often arbiters of justice and that sort of thing it seems that the romans were were threatened by druidic power and felt threatened by it as it's definitely not a sort of church state separated religion as we might imagine it now the romans were broadly all kind of all right with other people's religions um, they often just you know nick the gods themselves and thought yeah we'll add it to our pantheon so we can't see their suppression of druid, druid druidism uh, through a sort of modern lens of well obviously they're just being intolerant of a foreign religion that's kind of not the case i think that their their, their gripe with it is that it's is it is it's also a kind of a political organization and the druids were seen as a sort of unifying communicating network throughout the celtic peoples that they they sat on a layer above tribal petty conflicts now if your mo is to divide and conquer which as we know the romans are that's a massive problem. So for this reason, um, Caesar and future Roman leaders led brutal campaigns of repression against Druid, Druidic practices. Um, and lots of what we know about Druidism is 
the stuff written by people like Julius Caesar in order to justify these atrocities. So that's why it's quite difficult to say what we know about them is true. Caesar in his commentaries on the Gallic Wars says, quote, They believe in effect that unless for a man's life a man's life be paid, the majesty of the immortal gods may not be appeased, and in public as in private life they observe an ordinance of sacrifices of the same kind. Others use figures of immense size, whose limbs woven out of twigs they fill with living men and set on fire, and the men perish in a sheet of flame. End quote. Now those are really familiar images to us, aren't they, of the wicker man um, and of you know the idea of human sacrifice and so forth. And that's this is where they come from. However, it's not all. It's not made out of whole cloth. It is. It is. I mean, druids did definitely carry out sacrifice, and it's quite likely that they did perform human sacrifice. You know, possibly again one of the reasons why this island was seen as this kind of terrifying place of people you really don't want to mess with. It's been suggested, um, I think, more in kind of early modern sources. Uh, when religion was obviously causing a lot of wars anyway, that this repression was a, an obvious cause of resentment for the native Britons, that, that religion is the kind of thing you go to war over, and therefore that's probably why this uprising happened. I think, as we'll see in the story of Boudicca, it, this may have played a part, but I think there are definitely more immediate things going on that we'll, we'll get onto. Now, we're finally we're getting there. Um, so our specific concern um, within this story, within Roman Britain, is a tribe called the Iceni. And this is, well, what we know about them. They're, they're basically in Norfolk. They're quite a small regional tribe. They became a client of Rome in, in, in 43 AD. They're probably one of those 11 kings that turned up and said that they would, um, they would swear subservience to, to Claudius. It does seem like it was a less Romanized part of Britain. It's more in keeping with, pre, with Iron Age or pre-Roman Britain. There, there appears to have been much less trade with Rome, uh, much more self-sufficient. There isn't really a large urban settlement. So it appears that they haven't kind of bought into the Roman package as much. And it's, it's plausible and perhaps tempting maybe then to see this coming clash as one between the sort of authentic Britishness and the encroaching Roman power. In, in 48 AD, the governor, uh, Scapula, uh, tried to disarm all of the Britons. It's unclear whether that was in response to a British uprising or whether it caused a British uprising, but in any case, it's sort of linked with an uprising. And that's a major cause of resentment for the Iceni. As I said, it's a, it, it seems to have been a sort of warrior society based on warrior prestige, so taking away the swords is not going to be popular. So this this kind of weapons embargo, these, um, I suppose you could say, sort of sword control laws, come into effect. And and as you can imagine, that well, the Iceni basically say, come and take them. And there's a very bloody rebellion that gets put down very quickly by the Romans. There's, I, I mean, there's interesting parallels there, aren't there? I mean, as we've seen, uh, weaponry, owning weaponry, the public owning weaponry is, is a hot button issue and gets people very angry. Um, and that's definitely the case then. Now, the king who had, who had, who had sworn fealty to Claudius in, in 43 AD was a different person who we don't, we, we don't know lots of the names. He succeeded quite likely after this rebellion by a sort of, probably a Roman puppet king, this guy called Prasitagus. Now, Prasitagus is one of those who was brought into the Roman culture package. He's become a priest of, you know, the, the Roman cults and so forth. He's in heavy debt to to Rome financially and you could say, I suppose, politically because he's been given this, this position. And he's put in place with his wife, Boudicca. She's finally entered the stage. Now, we do need to very just swiftly talk about the sources a little bit, where we're getting this information from. Uh, this is obviously a bit of the podcast that lots of people dread. In this case, I really do need to talk about the sources. Um, if nothing else, so that I can avoid having to qualify every single bias later on. In this case, I think the sources are actually really interesting, and, and we will talk about why they've been written and why the, the various horses that the writers have in the race. The sources that we have are Tacitus and Dio, and that's it, really. 
this is obviously really one-sided because they're both Romans. Well, Tacitus is Italian, Dio is Greek, but they're both sort of Romanized writers. These these sources and the story gives us a, a strong sense that this all fits into some sort of kind of grand narrative of the Roman Empire, that this is an event that occurred to and occurred because of Rome. It's all in the context of Rome. Importantly, though, both Tacitus and Dio survived the reigns of tyrannical emperors, uh, Domitian and Commodus, respectively. So their attitude towards Roman power or the expression of Roman power, Roman tyranny, is, is ambivalent, to say the least, which makes them much more interesting sources. They're not just writing a glory, glory, Rome, look how great Rome is, sort of history. They are writing something with some more edges to it. Tacitus actually provided two accounts. Um, he wrote what's called the Agricola and the Annals. Tacitus is much closer to the time. I'm, I'm going to do what most historians do, which is mostly follow Tacitus, mostly from the Annals, but with a sprinkling of Dio for drama, because Dio is good at drama, not necessarily good at facts. Tacitus is, is, is possibly more likely to be right, because the Agricola, as I said, that thing that he wrote, Agricola was the governor of, of Britain, the kind of generation after Boudicca, and was quite likely present in Britain during the, the, the revolt and... and um, Agricola was Tacitus's father-in-law, who he was kind of bigging up um, and wanted to impress, but but quite likely essentially had first-hand sources um, for what he's talking about. That said, we need to take it all with lots of pinches of salt. Now, the the fi final interesting note to say about the about Tacitus's two different accounts we have the the Agricola and the Annals. The Agricola doesn't make a huge amount of it. It, it. it kind of whips through the story really quite quickly of what happens with the Boudican Revolt, and the Annals is much more in depth about it. And the question of why it differs, I think, is interesting. I think it's quite likely that Tacitus knew more when he wrote the Annals. He literally had, it's quite possible there's kind of um, an unknown source that both Dio and Tacitus were working from that had extra information in it. But importantly, the Annals offers just a way better story. He's sharpened it. He's added in events that help him to more effectively deliver his message. We'll get on to what that message is. But he turns it into a more compelling narrative. So we've got some characters to introduce. The first one to introduce is Paulinus. Hello, editing Peter here again. Um, this is just a note to say that I, I realise I haven't explained this. Um, lots of people or anyone who knows a little bit about the subject might know that this guy uh, is actually typically referred to as Suetonius, Suetonius Paulinus, um, or I think Gaius Suetonius Paulinus is his full name. Um, I decided not to do that. It's just a convention that some history historians have gone in for calling him Paulinus instead. I think it's that there's a, a quite... A major Roman writer also called Suetonius so we call him Paulinus because that's kind of a less famous name so I'm sticking with Paulinus. Now Paulinus is the governor of Britannia and the governor he's basically the 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 arbiter of Roman rule within within Britannia he's the he's the most important Roman official in the province. He was made governor in 58 AD that's kind of three years before our story starts, two years before our story starts. He was born in 11 AD so he's getting on for about 50 years old. He was an experienced military leader um, he had already commanded in Mauritania, uh, which was another province with a lot of angry locals who weren't very happy about being under Roman Roman rule. So he he's he's quite a formidable kind of character. Tacitus describes him as follows: quote, "His ambition was to defeat the enemy and so equal Corbulo's glory in recovering Armenia." End quote. Now you don't need to know who Corbulo and, and what he did in Armenia is, but but it's a it's a good reminder that these are agents of Rome acting not necessarily always in the interest of the empire, but are fighting to be on top and for fighting for, for prestige, to be remembered as great people. He's, he's by all accounts, quite a physically impressive man. The, the, the statue that we do have of him makes him look very martial and very kind of capable, though that's obviously what you would want your statue to look like. On being made governor, he goes immediately 
to Wales um, and attempts to get it under Roman control. That's where Caraticus had run to. That's that's a kind of hotbed of unrest. And he's fighting the Silures and the Ordovices, who are the Welsh tribes. And everyone's slowly getting backed up to the Menai Straits, up to Anglesey. And that's where we're going we're gonna to leave him at the start of this story. Now, I've looked at the kind of general conditions of why you might resent Roman rule, but but the specific causes of this rebellion bear a little bit of, of going into. The first thing we need to look at is, is basically what what how did Romans how did Rome view its own imperial project? What did it think it was doing? There's a very famous quote, a Caledonian war chief, this is later on, actually when Agricola is going and knocking around up in Scotland. Caledonian war chief who says, or Tacitus has him say again, quote Globe grabbers, plunder, murder, and rapine, these things they misname empire. They create desolation and call it peace, end quote. Now that's been re-paraphrased that they create a desert and call it peace, whatever. The Roman vision of, of, of um, empire, of the creation of the Pax Romana, was called Pater Victorious Pax, and that means peace gained through victory. And Nick Fields puts it nicely when he says, quote, if you were non-Roman, you were either unfree or unruly, Roman victories meant the forcing, peacemaking, not maintenance, peacekeeping of Roman peace. I think that's a really important distinction that the Romans were viewing this kind of the creation of peace as an active endeavour that you've got to go and slaughter lots of people in order to achieve. He goes on, quote, for the fiercely competitive aristocrats of Rome, warfare was gravy. It gave them a purpose, an opportunity to carry out what they had been trained to do since childhood, end quote. So that I mean, this is again a, a statement of the fact that this that Rome was a deeply, deeply militaristic society. That the whole political structure was sort of military. And if you've trained to be a hammer all your life, everything starts to look like a nail, doesn't it? And I think what that means is that is that um, just as the, as the Roman political structure is military, admin, the administrative structure is as well. Admin duties in provinces are carried out by people called beneficiarii, or a, a beneficiarius singular. And that's just a soldier who takes on an extra job you know, an officer probably, but who says to the governor, oh, I'll be the person who, you know, ground level uh, colonial administration is interfacing between the state and the subject. And the context of that is military. You don't get a a civilian civil servant coming and collecting your taxes. You get a tax collector with a sword. And that's a whole different thing. I think there's an interesting parallel here, actually, to the, you know, through the lens of the defund the police movement which is basically the idea that sending an enforcer to do a councillor's job is a crap idea. And the Romans did have a habit of trying to make their soldiers all things, which makes sense if your military is, you know, your state really is the military, that your soldiers become engineers and become builders and become and become police and all of those kinds of things. But that system has its shortcomings. And I think sending a load of, you know, this peace, peace gained through victory, this kind of very military version of peace, is the context for the specific causes of this rebellion. So Prasitagus, our king, Boudicca's husband, dies in 60 AD. We think he probably died of old age, but we're not really sure. And Prasitagus has been a Roman client. He's got an agreement with Rome. And he's trying to, he's thinking, well, how, he doesn't have any sons. And he's thinking, how am I going to navigate this succession? How, is it, how, how am I going to keep the Iceni as a, as a kind of British people under a British king? And he wills half of his kingdom to Nero, the, the emperor, and he wills the other half to his daughters, kind of under the, the stewardship of his wife, Boudicca. Now, Nero, and I suppose Rome more generally, but Nero specifically, I don't think I have a picture of a man who's particularly good at taking half of anything. Um, and it was quite common practice for client kingdoms to be a sort of stepping stone towards proper absorption into the province, to be sort of on the death of the king, to be kind of hoovered up while nobody's looking or whilst, whilst everything's, there's a moment of uncertainty. Prasitagus says, this is, this is what's going to happen. We're going to sp- half, half and half. 
The Romans will get their due, but it'll stay under under British control. The Roman procurator, who's the sort of uh, the highest administrative official, so we've got the governor Paulinus, but the Decianus Catus is the, the procurator, and he's basically in charge of the money of the province, of collecting the taxes, of paying people. And he decides it isn't enough. He decides half is, isn't enough and basically comes and grabs it all. Now, this is quite possibly linked to the, to the kind of recalling of Prasitagus's debts, the fact that he's massively in debt to Seneca or somebody, probably, that there had been this... What, what if, I mean, and this is, there is a lot of uh, modern resonance with this, but basically a, a big group of, a, a group of Roman elites who are conspiring to keep huge parts of the population in bondage through debt and to continue to accrue money through that and to harvest huge profits from that debt. As I said, this has been given to the British elite under the, the guise of funding for their participation in a prestigious kind of Roman lifestyle. Now, this, I mean, there's so many levels to why you would be in, incredibly pissed off about this, because the Romans basically said, this is what you, you know, you've got to participate in this in order to be a client king. You've got to drink the wine, wear the silk, have the slaves. We're going to extend the line of credit to you, and then you've got to pay it back to us. And you've specifically got to pay a large amount of it back to us in order to sponsor the building of the Temple of Claudius in Camulodunum. Now that, so that's literally a temple to the newly deified emperor who conquered you 20 years ago. The optics of that are just terrible. I mean, you could say, on some level, it's the Romans kind of really putting the boot down and saying, remember your position. You know, you've been conquered and you're going to pay for the, pay for the privilege of it. However... It, this is the specific touch point, I think, that if we're thinking in real life terms, because we're going to see within this story, Boudicca has a huge amount of agency in terms of just kind of calling this this rebellion up out of nowhere. But and 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 I'm I'm not I'm not in the market of trying to kind of to diminish that agency. But if we do want to think about a world in which that rebellion is ripe to happen, I think this is probably one of the the foremost causes. If you've got an entire level of elite society who are all furious with what's been done to them and who are all you know proud people used to getting their way and being at the top of things they're going to be really angry when you when you kind of pull this fast one on them which has been done as i've said again this is this is not the roman state that's doing this we could say we could say this is roman individuals this is not particularly beneficial to the roman state it's it's individuals essentially seeking to make profit again nick fields Quote, this was a continued piece of blundering stupidity, perhaps, but Nero was always short of money, and Britannia may not have been turning out to support itself, let alone be such a ready source of funds as Rome had originally hoped, end quote. So the procurator here is, is basically under pressure to make the budget balance. Britain had taken more effort to, to conquer than had been anticipated. It was taking a lot of effort to keep under the thumb a lot of soldiers there, and it, we, they couldn't extract they weren't extracting as much wealth from it as they would like to. Now, this wasn't a cleaning out of things in a cl in a clinical kind of corporate takeover way, as it perhaps should have been if you had a, a civilian administration. Instead, these beneficiarii, these soldiers, come to, to handle the takeover, much more like a conquering army, because that's what they're used to doing. That's, that's the only context they have for interfacing with conquered peoples, is at the end of a sword. And for the nobility of a kingdom who understood themselves to be the junior partner in an alliance, but but a partner all the same, that's not a nice way to be treated. Or well, I mean, it's not a nice way to be treated, obviously, but it's, it's they don't see it as a suitable way to be treated. Tacitus says, quote, "The Icenian king Prasitagus, celebrated for his long prosperity, had named the emperor his heir, together with his two daughters, an act of deference which he thought would place his kingdom and household beyond the risk of injury. The result was contrary." so much so that his kingdom was pillaged by centurions, his household by slaves, as though they had been prizes of war. As a beginning, his wife Boudicca was subjected to the lash and his daughters violated. 
all the chief men of the Icenians were stripped of their family estates and the relatives of the king were treated as slaves, end quote. This is taken to mean, because he doesn't quite explain what happened, because they tried to assert their right to inheritance, because Boudicca and daughter basically didn't say, oh no, we don't want our half, it can all go to Nero because we love him so much, the, the beneficiarii turn up and and clean out the shop. And Boudicca's daughters are raped, Boudicca is publicly whipped. This detail, as I was saying before, this isn't in the Agricola, this isn't in Tacitus's first account, but it does appear in the annals. There's no reason to think this didn't actually happen, but it is, you can see why he's included it because it makes the story hugely more compelling in terms of pathos, in terms of why this is happening. It becomes a personal story about a family under attack and about a mother avenging her violated daughters. It stops the story being about geopolitical forces and makes it about a, a, a personal individual. And this, this pathos would have applied to his, his Roman audience as well. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the Romans would be desensitised to the idea of her being whipped or her daughters being raped because they're, they're Britons, they're barbarians. Prastagus and his family had, had probably actually gained the privilege of Roman citizenship uh, because he's a client king, so he gets kind of made an honorary Roman. And the Romans are pretty multicultural by this point. And that's not to say there's not there's not uh, kind of racial hierarchy, but you do have Africans and Spaniards and and uh, Gauls and all sorts of sort of Romanized subjects in high and prestigious situations. So the noble Roman audience who, who, who Tacitus were writing for wouldn't have seen this as like a, a Roman or an Italian soldier who's racially superior, violating the nobles of a savage court, but instead of a soldier, quite possibly also himself, you know, Spanish or Illyrian or North African, violating nobility with Roman citizenship. So it would have been it would have been shocking for the readers as well, especially the idea that kind of slaves are carting off their things. So yeah, the idea of sl- and a common soldier beating a noble woman in public is, is is designed to be shocking to the Roman audience. And Tacitus wants to show the excesses of brutal Roman imperial rule. He, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like... He thinks it shows the, the decay at the heart of the Roman Empire. Needless to say, our, I mean, our modern reception equally sees this in a very potent light. And arguably it makes it more potent and a much more potent story probably than, than Caraticus' resistance, which, I mean, you could argue the toss, but but is is probably more significant as a as a, a resistance against Roman rule. It's the story of a mother avenging her daughters. In response to the Roman outrages, the Iceni take up arms, as do the Trinovantes. So if it was supposed to be kind of exemplary force showing the Britons their place, and, and you could say that, that whipping Boudicca and raping the daughters as well, I think it would be too simple to take those as, you know, carnal lust or, or, or anger, that these are probably calculated moves in order to to debase and to shame and to show that they are you know nothing they are worthless they're nothing and to do that in public in order to undermine their authority in order to show their you know their their subjects that they have that they have no special power that they have no ability to resist roman rule and that they should just totally give up if it's designed to do that it really doesn't work the trinovantes are a kind of people neighboring the iceni to the south actually quite a lot of larger tribe but they're equally outraged Probably by the general offences, they're probably equally angry, you know, disliking Roman rule for all of the same reasons the Iceni, but they're, they're equally outraged by the specific offences that are committed as well. We get, we're going to look at Boudicca's speech that she makes at this point, or that Dio gives her, and it includes element, these elements about essentially saying, well, look, if, if we're not safe under Roman rule, if a woman or a child is not safe, 
then none of us are safe and we need therefore we need to all take up arms and that appears to resonate with the local populace and i suppose is a broader thing that we can say about the i suppose the kind of deal of empire or the deal of any state i suppose is that the trade you're making is you give some of your produce or your output to the state to the empire and the very most basic thing we expect in return is sort of bodily safety we're trading a degree of freedom or self-determination for a guarantee of safety. The the Romans, by their own offences, have made it abundantly clear that that is not a deal that is in place anymore. So at this point, Boudicca really enters the stage of our story. I'm going to give you the, 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 the version that Dio gives us of what she looks like. He says, quote, In stature she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips, Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colours over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. She now grasped a spear to aid her in terrifying all beholders. End quote. Now we have absolutely no idea what Boudicca looks like, because there's no way that Dio was getting that from any sort of reliable source. He's just making up what she looks like. We don't know how old she was, we don't know what she wore. So I'd actually, I would like all of you to sustain whatever image of her you've already built up in your head, because it's as good as any. Um, we'll talk about the different versions of what she looks like and the significance of those. Interestingly, Dio gives her tawny hair there, or that translation gives her tawny hair. Um, other translations of it give her this, this, well, essentially it's the Greek word that means the kind of the colour of a lion's hair and is used to talk about animals. Um, so it suggests kind of, I guess, blonde, like a bright yellow uh, kind of hair. The significant things to pick out from that is that the the hair falling to her hips is is very much pitch for a Roman audience. That's Roman women would have had their hair up really all the time, and this would be very unseemly to have hair down to the hips. So it's, it's giving her this kind of bestial animal quality to underline her barbaric quality. And she's also given this this large golden necklace, this torque around her neck. Dio then gives her a fantastic speech, which I'm going to give you some highlights from at some length, so you'll forgive me, but it's a really, really good speech. It tells us a huge amount of what he makes of her and what role she is meant to fulfil. She says, quote, You have learned by actual experience how different freedom is from slavery. Hence, although some among you may previously, through ignorance of which was better, have been deceived by the alluring promises of the Romans, yet now that you have tried both, you have learned how great a mistake you made in preferring an imported despotism to your ancestral mode of life, and you have come to realise how much better is poverty with no master, than wealth with slavery, end quote. So here's the, I mean, the first trope of the nobility of barbarism that comes, this story kind of carries for us. Give me liberty or give me death, you know. Um, a kind of simple scrabbling freedom is better than the most decadent of luxurious slaveries that you could live. Dio here is invoking the kind of the spirit of the old liberty-loving citizens of the Roman Republic. From that side of Boudicca that, that we as Britons might venerate, harking back to our kind of ancestral mode of life, which she talks about, which is suitably vague to be very alluring. She goes on. Although we inhabit so large an island, or rather a continent, one might say, that is encircled by the sea, and although we possess a veritable world of our own, and are so separated by the ocean from all the rest of mankind that we have been believed to dwell on a different earth and under a different sky, that some of the outside world, aye, even their wisest men, have not hitherto known for a certainty, even by what name we are called, we have, notwithstanding all this, been despised and trampled underfoot by men who know nothing else than how to secure gain. However, even at this late day, Though we have not done so before, let us, my countrymen and friends and kinsmen, for I consider you all my kinsmen, seeing that you inhabit a single island and are called by one common name, 
Let us, I say, do our duty while we still remember what freedom is, that we may leave to our children not only its appellation, but also its reality. End quote. So, I mean, this real Braveheart stuff, isn't it? So here, Dio kind of casts her as a as a, an elemental avenging force of of Britain of Britannia as i was saying he also transforms transforms her into a kind of an ideologue with a vision of british freedom this is one of the differences between dio and and tastas tastas very much focuses on the fact that she is an avenging woman avenging a kind of personal personal injury dio transforms her into into a british freedom fighter you know and that that british bit is important for how we remember her it is it's totally out of place as you can tell from dio he says that they live on a huge island that's basically a continent so he doesn't know very much about britain he also says they are all of one name you know we are a people all of one name my kinsmen my countrymen she says i mean that's partially romans romans viewing them as a kind of homogenous other but it's a really appealing part of this story to slightly later historical actors as we'll see that is representative that she is representative of the island as a whole, as Albion, a long time before any any such idea of, of England or Great Britain existed. She goes on. Have no fear whatever of the Romans, for they are superior to us neither in numbers nor in bravery. And here is the proof. They have protected themselves with helmets and breastplates and greaves, for they are influenced by their fears when they adopt this kind of fighting in preference for the plan we follow of rough and ready action. Indeed, we enjoy such a surplus of bravery that we regard our tents as safer than their walls and our shields as affording greater protection than their whole suits of mail, end quote. Here, Dio, I mean, Dio is casting her here as a kind of a stupid but very brave, it's kind of a backhanded idea of Celtic or barbarian exceptionalism. They're so tough, they're so brave that they never come up with plans, they never try and protect themselves, they don't build walls because they just go into battle unthinkingly. She goes on, quote, there is also the fact that they cannot bear up under hunger, thirst, cold or heat as we can. They require shade and covering. They require kneaded bread and wine and oil. And if any of these things fail them, they perish. For us, on the other hand, any grass or roots serve as bread, the juice of any plant as oil, any water as wine, any tree as a house. Let us therefore go against them, trusting boldly to good fortune. Let us show them that they are hares and foxes trying to rule over dogs and wolves. End quote. It's the suggestion that the Britons are kind of fundamentally tougher and that's very attractive to us as well. We like this story of them as kind of these native inhabitants of a land that are kind of supported by it. Again, it, it's a rather spiritual element, but it suggests that the, the actual substance of Britain itself is anathema to an occupying power and, and nurtures these freedom-loving individuals. It's again, it's similar to the rose-tinted and the equally silly ways in which Native Americans have been portrayed in, in Dances with Wolves or those later Westerns in which they live sort of at one with, with the earth and that that suggests, and that that's used as a very easy shorthand for moral goodness or a moral rightness. Again, it does for Dio's audience remind the Romans though, also, it's not, this isn't really about the Celts, this is about the Romans, that they have become decadent, that they have become weak. And indeed it, it plays into a general sense that though they have virtues, Mediterranean Romans are very preoccupied with the idea that they are kind of smaller and weaker than their northern counterparts, and they need to make up for that by, by design. Dio continues his account. He, he details how Boudicca then releases a hair from the folds of her cloak, uh, which is a very cool stage trick, um, and is a form of divination. It runs off in an auspicious direction. Quote, Raising her hand towards heaven, she said, I thank thee, Andraste, who's a, a British goddess of war, and call upon thee as woman speaking to woman, for I rule over no burden-bearing Egyptians as did Nitocris, nor over trafficking Assyrians as did Semiramis, much less over the Romans themselves as did Messalina once, and afterwards Agrippina, and now Nero, 
who though in name is a man, is in fact a woman, as is proved by his singing, lyre-playing, and beautification of his person, end quote. It's obviously absurd that, that she would know these things, that she would know about Nitocris, who ruled over the Egyptians, or, or Semiramis over the Assyrians. But she is placing Nero in a, a line of female Roman rulers, and pre presenting the Romans, importantly, as a, as a burden-bearing people, that they have chosen to live under the yoke of this empire. Quote, those over whom I rule are Britons, men that know not how to till the soil or ply a trade, but are thoroughly versed in the art of war and hold all things in common, even children and wives, so that the latter possess the same valour as the men. As the queen then of such men and of such women, I supplicate and pray thee for victory, preservation of life and liberty against men, insolent, unjust, insatiable, impious, if indeed we ought to term these people men who bathe in warm water, eat artificial dainties, drink unmixed wine, anoint themselves with myrrh, sleep on soft couches with boys for bedfellows, boys pass their prime at that, and are slaves to a liar player and a poor one too. Whereas may this mistress Domitia Nero reign no longer over me or over you men, let the wench sing and lord it over Romans, for they surely deserve to be the slaves of such a woman after having submitted to her so long. End quote. Now, there's some amazing put-downs in that, and a huge amount to unpack. You may guess, Dio, who obviously is making up this speech and having Boudicca say it, really didn't like Nero. As much as it, it wouldn't be dangerous for him to insult Nero, because he's writing a long time afterwards, it, it wouldn't really look very good for him directly to attack the office of Roman Emperor. It would look very kind of unpa unpatriotic to, 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 to just pu purely put this in his own, own words. So he's putting it in the form of, well, this is what someone else said about him very eloquently in a style very similar to my own. This is where we really get to the crux of Dio's point or the, the element of the story that he's, he's so hungry to use. She is a woman. Boudicca is a woman. and But she can use that to, as a stick to beat Nero with. Nero, whose effeminacy he, he highlights by his lyre playing, his dancing, his, his beautification of his person, all as representatives of the kind of moral decay of the Roman Empire that can be summed up, I mean, essentially a sort of effeminization of the Roman Empire, which the Romans saw as the ultimate sort of moral decay. In fact, he sort of makes Boudicca into a man in all but her sex. In her physical description, he's, he's putting her into, the, you know, this sort of physically imposing, uh, deep-voiced individual. And he's, he's kind of imbuing her with Roman kind of masculine virtues, a sort of love of Spartan freedom. Obviously, her biggest error is just being a woman, which is a sin for which Dio cannot forgive her at all. And he's not doing, he's not doing this to big up the Britons, I don't think, but he's doing it in order to illustrate how far the Romans have fallen, both in their rulers, but moreover in allowing themselves to be ruled by, by women, by, uh, as he's saying, by Agrippina and Messalina, who weren't, they weren't empresses at all. Well, they, 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 they were the wives of Emperor Claudius, but were seen to have such influence at court. That allow, basically allowing them to have such influence it was base and immoral and a sign of how badly things were going wrong. And, and basically the Roman people allowed themselves to become burden-bearing people. They carry things around for women. What an absolutely awful thing to do in Dio's eyes. And this message wouldn't be as potent if it was coming from the voice of a barbarian man. It's saying you've fallen so low that a barbarian woman who in our you know, ranking of social strata within Rome is pretty low is shaming you and is calling you out on all of these things. Now, all of the stuff he's talking about, about luxury, I think, is, is there's a similarity to a lot of the social dialogue at the moment. She calls out men that know not how to till soil or ply a trade, end quote. She says, she's basically saying that's what the Britons are, and that makes them great. Basically, they don't know how to farm, they don't know how to make stuff. All they know is how to eat bark and live in a swamp, and that's kind of virtuous and great. That's what men should be. And I think, you know, that, that, that to me is quite similar to the current 
I mean, definitely still minority narrative, but there is one going on, not to generalise, but I think from broadly from a, a body of right wing, mostly young men, a sort of a, a sort of proud ignorance of how to operate within what is viewed by the holder of this viewpoint as a debauched and a morally corrupt civilization. You know, basically saying, well, if this is civilization, then I want to be a barbarian. I think that's that's what Dio's saying. And that's 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 an idea, I think, that's kind of coming back. You've got preppers, haven't you, for whom, ironically, preppers, agriculture is quite important because agriculture for us is the thing to go back to. The Britons are much more hardcore preppers, I suppose. They're saying agriculture itself is weak. Agriculture was a mistake. Let's eat berries and bark and we'll be absolutely fine. So I suppose just to reflect on that within our own society, this isn't a new societal impulse. In fact, maybe it's sort of eternal, this idea to return to a... I mean, from a sort of civilizationalist, you know, the progress civilization point of view, essentially it would be good to go back to a kind of worse version of ourselves, to give up some of the, the, the things that we see as good. Now, I think the most interesting dimension of this, and this is the last major thing I'm going to talk about, I promise, before I wrap up for this episode, is the way that it places Boudicca in a, in a series of women that exist in the Roman psyche. Uh, Nick Fields, who I've already quoted from before, calls her, quote, a frightening yet perversely bewitching British warrior queen who created more nightmare and bloody havoc among the conquerors than any male British opponent, end quote. To understand this, we need to know the Romans were an incredibly misogynistic patriarchal society, even for sort of pre-modern standards. For the Romans, in pretty much exact opposition to the masculine ideal, the masculine ideal was, was to, live your, to live your life publicly, for public approval, in public, for public recognition, um, I was listening somewhere recently that they didn't even eat breakfast at home. They just kind of stood up in their, you know, night toga, put on their day toga and walked out the door. And that was it because public life was everything. The ideal of the Roman woman, the Roman matron, as it's called, is entirely private, is silent, dutiful and private, kind of modest and virtuous. And Boudicca is the exact opposite of this, obviously, and and becomes an object for that reason of horror but also, I think, a fascination for the Roman mind. And her doing it, in the guise of it being in the guise of history, gives Dio and Tacitus the opportunity to kind of talk about it, to say, well, I'm just reporting what happened. She's the one that stood up and breached all of these taboos. And let's take a look at actually what, what does it look like when a woman stands up and takes power? What does a woman with a spear look like? You know, there's something a little bit kind of fetishistic about it. The Romans saw female power as symptomatic of of the barbarian societies that they were looking to conquer and kind of proof of their inferiority, proof of their need to be improved. The fact that they have female rulers as a sign of how how low they'd come. And therefore, that's why Dia is using it as a sign of, of Roman societies backsliding, that women are coming to, to places of prominence. Uh, the practice of showing female gladiators, for example, Juvenal, who's another Roman writer, dubbed them, um, quote, monsters. Uh, and he called it, he called it one of the, quote, the evils of a long peace, end quote. So again, it's that idea of, well, we've got too soft. We've, we've, we're just enjoying so much peace and so much freedom that we're getting bored and we're bringing out women and putting them in armour and, and giving them far too much agency. I think this extends from a dislike or disgust to actually a fear of female power and autonomy. The, the trope of the evil stepmother is, is arguably a, a kind of a Roman invention. Um, Augustus's wife, Livia, is is really the, the fundamental one. There's a kind of a, a, a brand of, of Roman history, which is that Livia killed absolutely everybody as a kind of poisonous and Lady Macbeth sort of figure. Well, and, you know, Lady Macbeth is entirely a, a, a member of that kind of uh, bloodline. Messalina, Agrippina, as I said, Roman women who are in positions of influence coincidentally all happen to be evil. 
You know, that, that, that's how they're all being portrayed. However, you know, the very fact of female gladiators in the arena, for example, shows there is some tension there in that Roman attitude to it because Juvenal sort of presents it, the situation as though women have become overmighty and have become liberated and they've started submitting themselves to death matches for the pleasure of the audience. That's the first thing they went and did with their liberty. Obviously, that isn't the case. Women gladiators evidently belie a deep fascination from Romans and, to be clear, I suppose that's Roman men with the idea of warrior women because they're the one who are paying for them and putting them there and and put, throwing the games and giving them permission to to do that and i think that fear on a i mean on a most basic level you could you could say it's you could say it's it's kind of like an extension of the way that they talk about barbarians that it's not all disgust it's not all complete contempt it's fear as well because it's the same thing if you're a, if you're a, a minority group extending power over a majority group you need to tell yourself some quite complex stories about them. And as much as that's happening in a geopolitical sense, you could also say it's, you know, the, 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 the misogyny and the gender stratification within the Roman Empire is itself, a, you know, one group ruling over another. And they need to create a kind of myth as to why that's happened. Otherwise, the women might get sick of it at some point, I suppose. This, this sort of storytelling of the Romans telling themselves stories about women goes right back to the, to the Trojan Wars, um, the legends of the Amazons. One of my respondents had actually associated Boudicca with, with female archers who chopped off one breast so as to fire their bows more effectively. Um, now, although you know, he, that, that was wrong, that's not, that's not Boudicca and the Britons, I don't think that's coincidental. That's, that's a story about the Amazons. Uh, Queen Penthesilia of the Amazons, who were the historical breast removers, is portrayed as this kind of semi-monstrous, semi-desirable warrior queen who Achilles falls in love with um, at the moment of her death. And the portrayal of this, this popular story, is by no means a kind of censorious portrayal of Penthesilia as a shameless and awful woman. I think it underlines a, a, a deep Roman fascination with this taboo. And right from the start, the ferocity, the barbarity and the sexuality of warrior women are sort of entwined in this story. Then in, in Roman art and drama and history, queens like Dido or Cleopatra or Zenobia or Boudicca who for us are indicators of female power in, in our story. That's why we, that's one of the reasons why we tell these stories is to, is to remind ourselves that female agency and power does exist in historical narratives. Are actually, these, these stories are actually used by the Romans as proof positive of female unsuitability to rule and often of the inferiority of the societies that are ruling. Dido, for example, gives up in Carthage because she is spurned by Aeneas. Cleopatra is this seductress who enslaves Mark Antony, but was unable to do the same to the virtuous Octavian, who becomes Augustus. So we can then see this ideology quite conveniently fits the metaphor of Rome as a masculine conquering force, and the provinces or the colonies or the subjugated peoples as feminine bodies. And Britannia here is, is a case in point. And I mean, I suppose both Britannia the place and Britannia the the mythological woman. There's this really fantastic relief uh, from a, a Roman settlement in Aphrodisias. There are a series of reliefs. You can you can look them up, or I'll, I might I might try and attach them to the episode description or something. Uh, it's in modern Turkey, um, and there's this relief of Claudius as this kind of conquering warrior about to strike a death blow to the prone form of Britannia, who is modelled herself after a kind of Amazon warrior woman. Now, this actually it quite possibly predates or is really very closely contemporary with Boudicca's rebellion. So there's evidently something quite quite sort of zeitgeisty going on here. Either Boudicca was somehow acting out a Roman idea that she had knowledge of, which that seems very unlikely, or the Romans' sort of exotic image of these barbarian societies was actually grounded in some reality that they did have more women, you know, in, in leadership roles. That's possible. Or, and I think this is most likely, the story that we're told is is simply a continuation or a retelling of this idea that the Romans were evidently very preoccupied with. 
in any case, I think it's, it's interesting to consider what the Romans are trying to convince us of in this this relief. Claudius, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't know he's, I've already talked you through what Claudius is like. He's not a great hero warrior and you wouldn't know it's him unless you saw the caption, as it were. Uh, Claudius presented as kind of demigod muscle man and Britannia is presented as this vulnerable and helpless figure, which you could say we, we know to be equally untrue to Claudius being a demigod muscle man because it had been quite difficult to conquer it. We could say it actually just belies a deep river of anxiety about how setbacks at the hands of these evidently very capable and very strong barbarian peoples, if we look objectively at the record of what happened in Germany and what happened in Gaul, that are starting to put kind of chinks in their aura of supremacy. And therefore the stories they tell are of kind of irresistibly mighty demigods, like Claudius, muscle-bound Claudius, um, defeating these helpless, vulnerable, feminized uh, provincial powers. So we have we have fear and fascination and strength and weakness all kind of mixed up in this Roman Freudian brew. And Boudicca, I think, possibly kind of falls into a place between these extremes. Because you see, there is a way for women to exercise agency in a good way in the Roman eye. And that's if they're doing so sort of on behalf of their families in a kind of virtuous, womanly way. And the first instance of this is the Sabine women. Um, Sabine women who this is early early Roman story, semi-mythological, um, who rush onto the battlefield between the Romans and the Sabines when they're about to have a big fight. That's obviously not a place for women to be in the Roman eye on the battlefield. And we'll actually we'll, we'll and we'll see that in, in, in evidence in this story. But the Sabine women put their bodies in the way of this impending violence. But this is excusable because they're doing it on behalf of their husbands and on behalf of their families, not in an attempt to kind of exert or exercise power in their own right. And I think the same applies to Boudicca to some extent, possibly we could say to Tacitus's version of Boudicca. He he chooses to include the rape of the daughters. He, he chooses to include her being whipped and casts her as a vengeful mother. And this allows his reader to take some sort of kind of moral soundings from the story. It is, however, this same emotional drive, the same which the Romans would have seen as, as kind of uniquely feminine, that leads to the downfall of her movement against the rational, calculating, masculine ideal in the Roman governor, Paulinus, and the, the, the necessary return of the province to sanity and order. So he's kind of saying, as, mu as much as she's admirable and there's moral elements to her, this, this is a distinctly, the idea of getting angry and vengeful is distinctly female and distinctly weak. And Boudicca, as we'll see, sort of simultaneously functions as an object of rugged barbarian virility you know dio's image of her conjures this glamorous kind of quite sexy amazon queen of also of motherly roman virtue and as a cautionary tale of what happens when women are allowed to exercise political or military agency and the fascinating thing about this is that whilst the roman audience was i think being asked to hold all three of the, these ideas in their head at the same time or to kind of you know read that coded message from the story since then, for different kind of historical audiences, and I think now to some extent as well, we've, we've kind of essentially just picked one or another of these ideals from the menu that the Romans have, have offered us. I don't know if we're reading anything new into the story that Tacitus and Dia didn't want us to. We're just ignoring part of their message, which we don't like. In any case, Boudicca was now at the head of, of a, a war host, possibly 100,000 strong. Though, as I've said, numbers in all of this need to be taken with a pinch of salt. And I'll leave you with the portentous words of our storyteller Tacitus. Quote, Meanwhile, for no apparent reason, the statue of victory at Camulodunum fell, with its back turned as if in retreat from the enemy. 
Women converted into maniacs by excitement cried that destruction was at hand and that alien cries had been heard in the Senate House. The theatre had rung with shrieks and in the estuary of the Thames had been seen a vision of the ruined colony. Again that the ocean had appeared blood red and that the ebbing tide had left behind it what looked to be human corpses were indications read by the Britons with hope and by the veterans with corresponding alarm. Thank you very much, listeners, for sticking with me and for coming back for this uh, second season of Pedestals. Uh, this is just a quick reminder that this podcast is, is currently totally independent and entirely self-funded and self-motivated. Um, if you would be interested in supporting the podcast, you can head over to my Patreon page, which is at patreon.com forward slash pedestals. Um, there are subscriber options. There are currently no subscriber actual sort of you know benefits. Uh, this would be purely philanthropic on your behalf, but really any contributions that can go towards uh, covering costs of hosting and buying books and so forth are really, really, really appreciated. Um, I've had a few supporters already, and a, a massive thank you goes out to, to those people. What did occur to me is that those, you know, that on Patreon, I think the, the model is basically that you subscribe and it takes money from you every month as a monthly patron. I currently can't really promise to be putting out episodes every month. That's just what I'm realising about the way that I have to research these. Um, now I've done the first episode of this season, it'll probably come out a bit quicker, uh, but there will be gaps in production, and I don't like the idea of of patrons kind of feeling like they're paying for something that they're not, they're not getting anything out of. So I totally understand if you, as I understand, you can essentially just sign up as a patron for an amount of money that you want to give and then just cancel your subscription straight away, and that would essentially make it a one-off donation um, if that's a way that appeals to you more uh, just to listen to a season and think well what was that was that worth a fiver was that worth a tenner whatever if you've got any questions at all or you want to point out any glaring errors and I, I will try to make corrections um, or if you just want to get in touch you can reach me on pedestalspodcast at gmail.com uh, links to all of this are, are going to be in the episode description this podcast is written presented and edited by me peter dewhurst a massive thank you goes out to uh, Fiona Wilson and to Brendan O'Rourke for their work on the logo, cover, illustration, whatever it's called. Uh, thanks also to all of the proper historians whose work I have cannibalised uh, and scavenged from. A uh, full list of sources is in the episode description. See you next time.